You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Chelsea. And today we are going to talk about a case that involves a couple. I know we haven't had, I don't think many of them. I think only one, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. So yeah, so this is going to be our second one. And now we, I always find that I'm, I'm a Facebook person, as everyone already knows. I always ask people like, what cases do they want to know? Because even though I feel like I'm like super involved in like, all our local cases, there's still tons that like go by that I don't know of or ones from when I was much younger. And I swear every time I ask, huge majority of people ask for this case. And I had heard of it briefly. I was young. Um, so I was very excited to get into this one. And it's about Danielle Imbo and Richard Patron Jr. And they had vanished together. And it's been a crazy mystery for 17 years. And we're going to jump into it. Danielle Imbo, who everyone called Danny, was 34 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was living in Mount Laurel, New Jersey with her son, Joseph Jr. She was living in Mount Laurel, New Jersey with her son, Joseph Jr. She was married to Joseph Imbo and was in the process of getting divorced. They had met when she was working at a car dealership, and he came in to purchase a car. He immediately had fallen for her and asked her out at the end of their meeting. But almost exactly a year before her disappearance, her husband went to the 2004 Super Bowl. At the time, he left his wife with a cold, and their infant was sick just to go to this game, which I think is terrible. Awful husband. Jeez. But when he returned, he informed her that he had met someone on the plane and he was going to leave her. Okay. This dude, like, <laughs> I'm going to go buy a car, gets a date. I'm going to go to the Super Bowl, find someone on the plane to fall in love with. Mm-hmm. Like, what is up with him? Oh, yeah. I'm just, just like, wow. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. You do you, boo. Oh, I yeah. Guess. And I mean, he immediately had moved and relocated to Georgia, but this new relationship did not last. Months later, he was begging Danny to give him another chance. Now, at this time, she was working from home for a mortgage company. She was a lead singer for rock band, which I think is awesome, and they were called the Schoolboys, and they were based in New Jersey. Now, John, her brother, said that she was following her father's footsteps because John Odebray Sr. was known throughout Philly and beyond as a doo-wop singer. He was in the group The Four Dates, which had national popularity in the 50s. That's awesome. I know. I thought that was pretty cool. I had to include it. Just had to. So she started to casually date Richard Patron Jr., who she had known since she was 15. They both grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I think from what I had read, she had gone to school with his sister, Christine. And through time, Christine was her best friend. And the families were extremely close as both of them grew up. When Joe found out about their relationship, he would call Richard's work and threaten him that he should stay away from his wife. At one point, Danny asked Richard for space to focus on herself, and I believe it was probably because she was irritated with how Joe was acting, kind of probably just wanted to get the divorce finalized, but they really hadn't seen each other in a couple weeks until the fateful night they both disappeared. Richard Patron Jr. was 35 and living in Philadelphia above his family's bakery, and he was, until recently, also living with his daughter, Angela. She had lived with Richard since the age of three, but around the age of 14, she wanted to move back in with her mom. All I could find was that she was kind of going through womanly changes, and I don't think Richard was kind of like, 
in the right like area to give her that knowledge and stuff. I could not find that they were married. I think that, you know, they were together, got pregnant. Didn't seem like there was any issues between the mom. She also lived in Philadelphia and he always still saw her a couple days a week. And basically he was her chauffeur. And like, all I can think of is like a kid at that time going to all these activities and like, it's in Philly, you want your kid to be safe. So I thought that was just like, like a great father thing. Like he always made himself available for her. And he worked in his family's bakery as well as living there. It was called Viking Pastries in Ardmore. He had gone to a restaurant school, which I didn't know was a thing. I thought it was like only culinary school, but a couple articles all said a restaurant school. So I'm guessing that's what it is. His specialty was wedding cakes and his famous cake was a shaved chocolate cake, which sounds delicious. Both of these like extended families have like the coolest freaking jobs. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. A rock band and a pastry and the thing that i found is like they all seem so damn close not only just the families in general but like together and you'll find out as we go but um it definitely seemed like a great place like a great set of people now richard was a huge family man he was really close with his sister with his parents and obviously his daughter every week they would eat at his parents house and his sister would join and his mom would make him his favorite meal which was chicken cutlets like how cute is that like, I love that. It's awesome. But on February 19th, 2005, Richard had reached out to Danny asking if she would get drinks with him. She had said yes. Joan Jr. was with his father that weekend. Angela recounted that Richard was so ecstatic to spend the night with Danny. She said that he hadn't dated a lot since her mother and him hadn't worked out, that he was head over heels for Danny. Now, he was totally bummed when she asked for, like, a separation, and he had wanted to text her all the time and would, I guess, ask his daughter what he should do, which I think is also cute. And, um, but he, yeah, so cute. But he definitely, like, respected her enough to give her her space. So that was, like, great to hear. So Danny started that evening with dinner with Christine, which is Richard's sister, her mother, and then Christine and Richard's mother, Marge Patron. They had a couple drinks, got dinner, um, and Christine was also invited out to go with Richard and Danny, but she declined. But she drove Danny to the tap room near where Richard lived. They spent some time there catching up and drinking, and then they decided to meet up with friends at Abilene's. Abilene's. They met with Anthony Michelle Valentino. That night was frigid, and Richard found a close parking spot to the bar. And he had made multiple comments about it that Anthony had heard. So that was like kind of like when the police were talking to him, that was noted so many times that they were like close. They didn't have to walk through a bad neighborhood. Um, And I guess Richard was really excited because I don't know if you guys have been to Philly, but finding like a parking spot where you want to be ain't easy. It's impossible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that like really stood out to him. Anthony was Richard's best friend. And when asked how the relationship between Danny and Richard was that night, he said they seemed like they were in a great place. They had been holding hands and even exchanged a couple kisses throughout the night at the bar. They were just drinking, catching up and enjoying a live band that was playing approximately at 1130 is when Danny and Richard left. Anthony was under the impression that Richard was going to drive Danny home. who She lived in New Jersey and then go back to his apartment. They all hugged each other outside of the bar and then walked to their car. And that's the last time that they were ever seen on Sunday. John Odebray, Danielle's brother showed up to her house at 9am to repair curtain rods that Joe jr. Had pulled down. 
This had been arranged the week before, and John thought it was very strange that his sister wasn't there. He had tried knocking, and when he called her cell phone, it went straight to voicemail. He then called his mother, Felicia, to see if she knew where Danny was. She told him that Danny went out with Richard and possibly just stayed at his house for the night. It didn't seem anything strange to her at that time. He was extremely close with his sister and even had a spare key, so he let himself in, fixed what he said he was going to do, and then locked the house, which I'm like, awesome brother. Like, she has so many great men in her life. Like, damn. But anyway. For real. <laughs> Um, I guess when police asked him, like, you know, when you went in, was anything like disturbed or anything? And he said, no, that nothing seemed out of the ordinary, that nothing was knocked down, that she was, I guess, pretty tidy and nothing seemed wrong. So then at 11 a.m., she missed her hairdressing appointment with Christine, who was her hairdresser. This raised more red flags because she was known as being punctual, and they had even talked about it at dinner the follow the previous night. She called Danny, and the call went straight to voicemail, too. She knew that Danny was with Richard the night before, so she decided to call Richard to see if he knew where Danny was. That call went to voicemail, and she became a little bit nervous. Christine then called her mother, who proceeded to call Richard, too. Her calls went to voicemail as well. I guess, like, if a mom's calling you, you're more likely to pick up. And like maybe someone else. I don't know. I don't know why everyone's just calling, but who knows? You never know. I know. I was thinking that too. I'm like, okay, cool. let's try something else. Yeah. Well, and I mean like sometimes if you're on a phone call, it'll buzz through the phone and show like, you know, call waiting that someone else is trying to call you. But sometimes if someone's calling and you're on the phone, it'll shove them right to voicemail. So maybe like, oh, I'll try again in five minutes. Maybe they'll be off the phone. True. And yeah you know, then maybe they'll answer that time. I mean, nowadays, it pretty much goes straight through. And if there's no ringing and it's in voicemail, usually just means the phone is off. But I mean, it could have been a little bit different. Yeah. In 04, so. Well, her mom got nervous. She knew that Richard should be home. He had made plans to have people come over around noon to watch the Daytona 500 with friends. So like. He obviously should be there. So at this time, she called her sister, that's Richard's aunt, who lived very close and asked her to go and just knock on the door, see if she could figure out what was happening. She went, knocked on the door, no answer, though she did hear his dog barking frantically. Now she didn't have a key or anything and the door was locked, so like she couldn't go in. Called the, called the mom back and Marge's next move was to call Anthony since she knew they were together the night before. He told her that he watched them leave together, assuming they were making their way to New Jersey to Danny's house. The families were staying in touch all day to see if either one of them would show up or if they'd find any information between either family. Now, Danny's family was getting really concerned because Joe Sr. would be dropping off Joe Jr. back home around five. The family decided not yet to tell joe senior that danny was i guess missing at the time at at the time they didn't think he was like she was missing but i guess like since things were contentious they didn't want to like add fuel for the fire or have i guess him take right. the kid back so basically john right. stepped up and went to go pick up little joe now when he showed up joe senior really didn't press why john was picking up instead of danny he, he just kind of was like hey why here he's like oh danny asked me to and that was kind of it there was no like Nothing else. He didn't try calling Danny or anything. Shortly after that, the family decided, Danny's family decided that they needed to contact the police because things were not really looking good. Everyone in her family said she would never leave Joe Jr. to not be picked up. Like, and as a mom, like, 
I am frantic. Like if I'm expecting someone else to pick Lena, like if I have it set up, it freaks me out. Like, cause I know I would never forget them, but like my grandmother's older, she might forget or like if something comes up. So it freaks me out. So both the families ended up calling the police and reporting them missing. But as we know, police typically are not fast to move with missing persons cases. So both families decided to look themselves like right away. The men drove to Philly and drove up and down the streets looking for Richard's black pickup truck. After that, they decided that they were going to drive the route that they think that they could possibly have taken to get from the bar to Danny's house. Yet they found nothing. They drove for over 12 hours, no sightings. And while the men were searching on the streets, the women of the families were calling hospitals and jails, and they also did not get any hits anywhere. Police ended up getting involved, but initially thought the couple simply wanted to get away since they couldn't locate the truck. The family adamantly disagreed because both had stable jobs, close family, both had kids, and zero reason to leave. The family and friends were desperate and they kept searching and handing out flyers. They started to widen their search and eventually covered a 100-mile radius of the city, which is insane. Police got dozens of tips, but they never developed into solid leads. The Delaware River was searched by helicopter looking for the truck. Authorities started combing through all their finances to find clues, yet there were no red flags and neither were in debt. None of their accounts had been used either since the night of their disappearance. Authorities then moved to watching surveillance videos. They pulled all the surveillance videos from all the ATMs on South Street, hoping to get a glimpse of the couple. Then they pulled the video cameras on the Ben Franklin and Walt Whitman bridges, thinking that that was the most likely route they would have taken to get to Danny's. Now, these videos, they never saw the truck, and they, they're under the impression that the couple never left PA. That's so scary. Yeah. Like, that just, like, gives you shivers. Oh, absolutely. A couple weeks later, the authorities thought they caught a break when a burned-out Dodge Dakota was found in Camden, New Jersey, but it was not Richard's car. It ended up being a stolen car. Police thought that maybe the same situation could have happened to the couple, and they scoured Camden looking for Richard's truck. They never found it, though. But this is still a huge theory of what happened to the couple. For some reason, people are sure that they found themselves in Camden, which ended in their demise. I've read on threads on like Web Sleuth that they believe like they got lost and ended up in Camden. But like Anthony never said he believed they were tipsy, let alone drunk. Like, how could they get lost going home since they had lived like in this area and traveled it for years? Like, well, and if, you know, let's just say playing devil's advocate, you know, they're drunk, driving, they shouldn't be, the friend says it wasn't the case, but maybe, you know, they let on that they were more sober than they were. You still wouldn't just disappear from Camden. Like, even if you wound up in Camden or wound up in the wrong area, eventually you're going to surface. Yeah. You and, know what I mean? And other people were like, oh, well, maybe they needed gas and didn't realize, or... Like, I don't know, something crazy. Maybe someone, like, flagged them down near Camden. Or th I guess that's kind of what happened in the other case. Like, mm -hmm. they got flagged down, the car got stolen and taken. Um, but exactly. Like, a black, like, a pickup truck is, like, where are you going to hide it? Like, it has to come out somewhere and two yeah. people. So, exactly. Now, the families put together a 50000 reward for any information leading to their whereabouts. They even put the flyers on billboards along I-95. Richard's family assumed that he was dead, whereas Danny's family had hope and figured since there wasn't a body, there was a small possibility she wasn't dead. The Patron and Odebrey families were friends for so long, but this incident tore them apart. 
Richard's family believed that Joe Sr. was involved in their disappearance. He had made multiple threatening phone calls to Richard on his cell and at his workplace. Joe Sr. had been looked into by the cops. He was never listed as a suspect, but he was then again never eliminated either. Joe Sr. had an airtight alibi that night. He was attending a family party in New Jersey where several NYPD officers were in attendance as well, and all of them vouched for him. He took a lie detector test, but the results have never been released. A grand jury did convene and interviewed people closest to Joe Sr., but they never took any action after. Danny's family believes that Richard got them into the situation because of gambling debts, but authorities say that he was not in debt and his family is adamant that he never gambled. There were zero reports of them caught fighting after leaving the bar. There was no crime scene. They never recovered the truck. Their phones have remained off since that night. There's been zero usage of their bank accounts, credit cards, or socials. Since nothing has been recovered, authorities believe that this wasn't a random act, but a well-thought-out targeted act. FBI believes they were victims of murder for hire, but have no evidence of why they'd be targets. They believe multiple people were involved and someone has to know something. In 2008, it was moved from a missing person's case to a murder for hire. Special agent William F. Sweeney Jr. was doing an interview with Crime Feed and said, around the 10th anniversary of their disappearance, we did receive some promising leads, which we continue to follow up on. So this case still remains very active and we will keep pushing. There's a sense of closure that both families need, and the victims deserve justice. In 2015, Christian Zajac with the FBI said to the news stations, this didn't just happen. We feel this was an orchestrated act, a 3,000-pound truck, and two people just do not simply go missing. Around this time, a new FBI cold case task force took over the case and started going through leads. Leads have come in from all over the U.S. and none of them have panned out. Over the years, land and bodies of water have been searched. There have been rumors of Richard having involvement with a gang. In 2016, William J. O'Brien III was a doctor who was charged and sentenced to 30 years in prison for unlawful distribution of controlled substances, which resulted in a fatality, along with other charges relating to the pill mill. There were also nine members of the Pagan's Motorcycle Club, who were charged with moving the pills for O'Brien. I did see mentioned that there was another doctor also charged in this as well, and apparently it generated about 85,000 tablets um, that this motorcycle gang moved for them, which is a lot. Wow. Apparently, it was like worth $980,000. <laughs> Their illegal pill mill was at, like, taxpayer expenses, and it was, like, a huge, huge thing. And a lot of people were, like, involved with it, and it was, like, a huge thing for Philly, taking this, like, pill mill down. They illegally moved oxycodone, methadone, Percocet, and Xanax. During the investigation, there was a possible link to Richard. The gang members, though, denied having any involvement in the double disappearance of Daniel and Richard. The... Uh, the Patron family also denies that he had any ties to organized crime, though one of the men in jail, who his name was Robert Carey, he hung himself with a shoelace, and he left a suicide note that some believe is a confession, but not everyone. I'm going to need Sarah to look at that note and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't find it, so like... If, they Sarah, probably huh. didn't release it. But Sarah, I was going to say, it's probably it. being held as evidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and there's, like, a ton of info on that, like, whole entire pill mill that you could, like, go down, but I didn't, since, like, it wasn't a real connection. I just, maybe someone just knew right. him and, like, just reaching for something. So, I didn't put a lot in there. I'm stuck on the fact that this guy 
hanged himself with a shoelace. Oh, yeah. Must have been pretty strong shoelaces. Shit. Where can I find them? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That's suspicious. I break shoelaces walking down the street. I mean, I know I'm clumsy, but. Oh, yeah. I just Uh, like to think about it. Like, I don't know how people like kill themselves. Like, obviously, if like they create a shank or something or I read somewhere that some man. Uh, this is I one of you ladies suggested it in one of our chats about this cult guy God, what's his name do, do you remember what it is a man um grace uh the satanic panic guy but anyway he filed his teeth and then he killed himself by biting his arm he bit his arm open and bled to death oh, oh my god do you know who it is Sarah uh, what is it it's um it's that guy who named him renamed himself after a god and had like a crazy house one of you ladies suggested it and I watched it and it was, it was crazy probably Amanda oh. it was probably the one person that's not here uh, of course <laughs> but like <laughs> yeah because I just don't I can't remember although my memory is really bad so it could have been me uh, it's <laughs> a good show Ow. but anyway I don't understand how people can kill themselves by hanging themselves because like don't you go unconscious and then like the slack just stops like I like where are you hanging yourself from other than your bed I don't get it not if it's high enough or if it is like a, I understand this is a total derailment but um if they have bunk beds, you can situate oh. yourself like off the side so that even when your body goes limp, like when you pass out, you're not like falling onto the bed. I get They're, like okay. off the side. Does yeah, that make that's sense? the only thing I can think of, really. Yeah. I guess I wasn't thinking bunk beds, but there's a lot of fucking people in prison, so I guess I had to get creative. Oh, yeah. They're on top of each other. <laughs> oh, Yeah. But yeah, so a lot of people do think that this was like a suicide. No, I don't know what's in it. No one like all the articles that I read didn't even like hint at why they thought it was like a confession. So I have no idea. Interesting. Now, the only other thing I could find about like rumors and there's like tons of random little rumors that like people that don't even know the family want to put out there that is just like baseless and I didn't want to at it is um a man named anthony rodeski he got his house searched and his basement and septic tank dug up and also searched but it didn't turn anything up now he was convicted of murdering two people in south jersey while attempting to rob them two separate occasions uh the first one was in maple shade on march 22nd and he was attempting to rob a hotel owner <coughs> ranch it i think that's how you say it patel <laughs> Ranjit, probably. Oh, okay, probably that. Sorry. Um, but he basically said he was like, I was gonna rob him, but then he screamed, so I had to shoot him. <laughs> it's like if you're gonna rob someone, don't you think they're gonna scream? Clearly, you had no other choice. Yeah. You know. Are you new at this? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, and if you look at pictures, I didn't post any in our like write up. It's rough. It's intense. Like, why would you be near him? But I don't know. But then he also, on April first, he shot James F. Minkno, who was forty five, and he was an owner of a floor decor in Maple Shade, and he shot him seven times. <laughs> like, it almost seems personal. Jesus. Um, well, bit. he's in jail right now. I don't know why it's linked to him. Honestly, um, I couldn't find the link, but, um, he, uh, 
he's fighting like his sentencing and stuff for like misrepresentation and everything else, just trying to play the system basically. But those were the, really the only two, um, I guess big rumors. Like there's really no information on what happened at all. So after the fact, basically a little like snippet of what like happened, like with the family after and like dealing with this. So Angela, Richard's daughter, started working in Richard's family's bakery when she was old enough. But it closed in 2018. I've read articles that point to the fact with like property values rising, it is like pushing out small businesses. Though the article I was reading, it had like tons of people, like I guess on like like the board of like the community or the town or whatever, like absolutely not. This isn't the reason blah, blah. And, and uh, some people were pointing to them losing their son, which is like such a low, a low blow. Like, come on, have some decency. Yeah. But, um, the bakery was featured on the show, save my bakery in 2013, which resulted in a remodeled store. Interesting. I know. Never heard of it. Um, and I have honestly never been there. I went to school in Philly like, and I'd been in Ardmore a lot, never went there, but I read reviews from when it was open. Apparently they had, um, some type of role that was super popular around Christmas time. And they would have like a line out the door, um, for this pastry or what have you. Now, Angela had a son named Timothy who means everything to the Patrons since they did lose their son, brother, father, Marge claims that she is in so much pain and could kill herself, but then she would never know what happened to her son. She claims... Oh, my God. Oh, no. It's heartbreaking. Gosh. I could not even imagine. She claims that finding out the answers is the only thing that is keeping her going. Whereas John Odebrey says justice isn't the important thing to him. What's really important to him is just to know what happened. Joe Sr. moved Joe Jr. and himself to South Carolina. John says they're able to see little Joe twice a year. And it's so hard because he sings just like his mother. And oh. yeah, which is like, oh man, I guess it runs Dagger in the family. In my heart. Oh yeah. Yeah. And apparently he looks just like Danny too. Like very similar facial features. Joe senior claimed he had to leave the area because the community looked at him like a monster. Now, basically like, Yep. I was just going to say, is that um, popular opinion that he had something to do with it? Oh, is yeah. That, that was like the biggest like, like consensus. Like gossip theory, mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, that's what's rolling through my brain, that it was murder for hire. And he set it up and set it up for a night that he had a solid alibi where police officers would see him. Yeah, that's very specific. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then I was thinking, like, where was the kid? Nowhere did it mention, like, he was, like, at this family event as well. And I've also heard, oh. like, dirty cops in New York. Who knows? Well, yeah. I don't know. Um, And it's just all super fishy. Just because he wasn't there didn't mean he didn't have, like, anything involved in it. And he had tons of friends that were cops and, like, really? Right. Yeah. So it's like it is definitely a big thing and uh Richard's family really really thinks that's like what happened um was that. Now Daniel was 5 feet 5 inches, 120 pounds, fair skin, hazel eyes with dark brown hair. She was last seen wearing a cream colored sweater, blue jeans. She has a flower tattoo on the bottom of her back, which I'm guessing is like right above her butt area type thing. 
Um, Richard was five feet, nine inches, 200 pounds, and had two tattoos. Both were on his arms. On the one arm had his daughter's name, Angela, and on the other was of clowns. He was wearing jeans. God, why? Yeah, I know. I was like, that's random. Hmm. Um, Whatever you're into. Yeah. He was wearing jeans, a gray hoodie, glasses, and sneakers. Richard's truck is a black four-door 2001 Dodge Dakota pickup with silver accents and a NASCAR 99 sticker in the rear window. It has a PA license plate, and the number is YFH2319. If anyone has information, call the FBI Philly Police Department, 215-686-3013. And now all I just want to say is, like, I've, there's, like, a couple pictures of them actually together, and their smiles are just, like, so amazing. They looked very happy. They're so sweet. They look like the sweetest people in hearing about their family. It's, like, it's really sad, and a lot of people still talk about this case, like, even on, like, the burbs of Philly. So I'm just hoping that they do find it because it's been too long with nothing. In the mid-1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing. They were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victims' families and friends and people who work these cases, along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. Unfortunately, with serial killing, the more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for Still from the Reporter's Notebook, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Amanda. And today we are going to talk about the Fort Indiantown Gap Jane Doe. This case is almost 50 years old, so hopefully we can spark a resolution for it. It was a cool evening in October in 1973 when two Lebanon County deputy game protectors were walking along Route 443 patrolling the usual area. However, there was nothing usual about this day. As they made their way through the Moonshine Church area, they caught a whiff of what they thought was a dead deer. They exited the vehicle and started to make their way into the woods towards the smell when they noticed something out of place. Tree branches were kind of spread out everywhere. See, it's their job to make sure people aren't hunting when they're not supposed to. So it's not hard to pick out some fresh cut tree branches in a pile and a piece of green plastic sticking out. It could definitely have been a poacher or a trap of some sort or even someone to try to hide a kill that was illegal. Until they could come back later to pick it up, of course. Either way, it was something that needed to have a closer look. They started to clear off the debris, logs, and a green plastic piece of something, and they found the remains of a completely naked and badly decomposed body. In fact, the only thing recognizable was the long hair, which indicated the remains were most likely female, which was confirmed during the autopsy. 
Jane Doe was Caucasian and believed to be between the ages of 12 and 22 and around 5 foot 5 to 5 foot 8 inches in height. Which, there you go, Sarah, there's that five, that five-inch difference in height. That gap. I feel like that age range is large, too, considering, like, that's, like, prepubescent and then young adult. Yeah. I wonder if part of it is that, you know, some, some females will hit puberty at, you know, 11 or 12, and some won't hit it until 18, 19, 20. So maybe it just kind of covers all of that, maybe. I guess. The majority of her decomposition was in her upper torso, which made it more complicated. However, they were able to describe her facial features as having a thin <gasps> nose with the bridge swayed slightly left and the tip to the right and a high forehead with a strong tilted chin. And a strong tilted chin. Yeah. How... Does a like how does the upper part of a body decompose faster than a lower part? If it's all in the same elements, how does part decompose at a different rate than others? I'm just coming up with random questions today, apparently. But <laughs> I have no I mean, idea. it's a good question. It's the same body. I'm curious. So. I'm wondering if the green plastic had something to do with it. Like if it was partly covered, maybe. And maybe because it doesn't really. I think it does say roughly how big. It was 48 inches by 32 and a half inches. Okay. Which is... So like a smallish blanket. Yeah. So is that big enough to cover someone's legs, I guess? For sure. I yeah. I like big blankets. Some reports say she had strawberry blonde hair and others say nothing. I don't know how you get strawberry blonde hair if she was that decomposed. I don't know much about hair decomposing. I don't know. Does hair decompose? I don't know. Eventually. I think eventually, but if it wasn't too much after, like, she actually died, then it would still be there. I mean, it would take a very long time for that to decompose. It's not like skin. Well, it was determined that she died only one to two weeks prior to discovery, so it's not like it was there. So I guess that makes sense. It's just yeah. weird. I keep thinking that with only the torso being, like, I almost think of it as it was burned, even though it wasn't burned, but, like, I'm trying to picture, like, from the waist up kind of missing in a, in a way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yes. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it. But also think about... And this, I understand this is not a great example, but um, whenever you have a funeral, a lot of times funerals occur a week to two weeks after someone has died. So the reason that their flesh still resembles flesh is because it's been pumped with chemicals. You don't like add chemicals to hair follicles. The hair grows a tiny bit after you die, but nothing that you know, you could shave the head and have a full head of hair back. So, I mean, there's not really any preservative that you add to a hair, to a hair, whatever, to hair when you're prepping a body for a funeral. And, you know, a week and a half, two weeks, three weeks later, whatever, the hair is still there and recognizable. And I'm, I'm just, still kind of, yeah, go ahead. sorry. <laughs> well, I'm just still kind of stuck on the fact that her upper body was decomposed so much more and it's not even a long time i would 
It was in October, so it was probably a little bit cooler. Exposed to the elements, though. I mean, it's sitting out all that time. There's, I hate to say this, but there's going to be scavenging animals that are going to take advantage of that, too. And you figure your, your legs are typically smaller than, like, your torso because your shoulders come out wider than your hips. Mm-hmm. So if you're wrapping in a blanket, your legs would be fully covered where the the top of you might not be fully covered. It might not close the same way or you might get two layers of coverage on the legs. Yeah. I don't know. Or so you have like more like soft tissue and stuff on the top of you, especially a female. Cause... So according to Google, it takes one to two years for hair to break down in soil. So... It makes sense, though, that, that you said sense, about the yeah. whole funeral thing. So, like I said, she was naked and she had no personal belongings on her or around her, such as jewelry or a purse or any identification. Her fingerprints and DNA are available, as well as her dental records, which are listed that she had some extensive dental work performed. In early reports, it was said that there were that marks were found on her arm and leg, but it wasn't determined if they were pre or post-mortem. And it doesn't really say like if they were saw marks or like what kind of marks they were. No cause of death is listed. However, given the fact that the remains were hidden, it's obviously suspicious. The idea of not determining if it was pre or post-mortem makes me think that if it was post-mortem, it was very quickly because anything like a bruise won't necessarily show post-mortem. It could. It would have to be pretty intense. But like a cut isn't going to bleed post-mortem unless it's like immediately after death. So I'm curious what kind of um, marks were found. Like if it was like an imprint on the skin or if it was some sort of break in the skin because i would think if it was a break in the skin you'd be able to tell if it was like pre or post i don't know that yeah they don't, that's what my face was for <laughs> they don't list a whole lot about it or even like like i said what it looks like Authority has also pointed out the fact that there was no attempt to physically dig a grave but they did take the time to put trees and stuff over it so it's suspected that the person involved was not a quote professional which i don't like that term i didn't care for that either but it's listed a few times in a couple different articles so well isn't it just saying it probably wasn't like a hit yeah yeah i guess yeah but it that seems like a weird thing to point out he wasn't even good at it well to specifically say oh and this was not a hit right it kind of makes me think of the brian wells case where the first line of a note was this is not related to the brian wells case like (laughs) right okay cool we didn't think it was but thanks for clarifying I, i i don't know that's like, we don't specifically say other cases were not hits. So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's super weird. I'm overanalyzing. It's fine. <laughs> the remains were found about 200 yards off of a dirt road between Tomstown Road and Moonshine Road, which is Route 443, which locals refer to as Five Point Area or Greenpoint Area. And this is also part of Fort Indian Town Gap Military Reservation. So, there is a theory 
about Fort Indian Town Gap. Um, us locals call it the Gap, and it's a National Guard training center. It serves as a headquarters for the Pennsylvania National Guard and is like a major reserve component for training posts and all of that. Um, now, clearly, I don't want to say that a soldier was involved with it, but there are soldiers rotating through there, and the possibility of it being one of them has been thrown out there quite a few times. However, I also want to mention that in the 70s and 80s, that the Gap served as a housing facility for Cambodian, Cuban, and Vietnamese refugees. So, not saying it was a refugee either, but like, it's there's definitely... The point is, is there's a lot of people going in and out of there. Well, and they said she was Caucasian, too. Um, so some of that, I mean, technically Vietnamese is Asian, which is Caucasian. Um, but Cuban, uh, Cambodian could pass as Caucasian. I would think a Cuban would definitely show as darker, though. But like... Too, depending on how decomposed the body was, could you really tell? Well, that's true. If it was, well, and that shows my stereotype too, because you know people think that my grandmother has dark skin because she's from the Bahamas, and we're just white Irish people, so they, you know, may not have even been a dark skinned. They are those, those different types of skulls, though. For like white, isn't another one. Mongoloid. In itself, Asian? Yeah. Okay. Mongoloid, yeah. Okay, so. But Caucasoid, which is Caucasian now, encompasses part of Asia, and I forget what okay. parts. It might be, it might be like Russia. Okay. That is, I don't know, more similar to like the Caucasian versus Asian. Yeah, that makes sense. Features, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, like I said, the point is there's a lot of people, like not only military, but you have all of these refugees and stuff. And the gap is over 18,000 acres and it butts up to state game lamb. So honestly, it really could have been anybody, like could be a local or anything. Um, The police started to look at I was just going to say, and really, like, anybody can access it. Yeah. I mean, you can't get into all the buildings because they're military, but you can drive, drive right by it. I mean, that's that's where Brendan's grandma is buried, and we've driven up there, and you don't need to show anything to be in that area. So really, anybody could have dumped anything there. And I don't think, like, if you would say that to somebody not from this area, you wouldn't think, oh, like, military base, you you can't get in there. It's going to be restricted. But it's literally just, like, buildings and in the middle of a forest. And like you said, there's no, you can just drive through it. I mean, we went to a wedding there. We've we've been there. They used to do burns there on, like, the old, Mm -hmm. um, the old, like, bunk things. What do they call them? Like where they live? Yeah. I forget what they... There's like some specific name. Yeah. But they used to burn them and use them as training. So... Anyway, police started to look at the only clue they had, which was this green plastic. The green plastic 
that covered her body was 48 inches by 32 and a half inches, and it had a white seal saying National Sanitation Foundation Testing Laboratory 8505. Authorities, cool. <laughs> right? Authorities started searching for answers, but they found nothing. This testing laboratory was not existent. However, I did a little digging myself, and what I found is National Sanitation Foundation, or NSF International, as it's called now, was founded in 1944 um, from the University of Michigan's School of Public Health to standardize sanitation and food safety requirements, and the headquarters is located in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and there are several military bases close by, so take it for what it's worth. We have had so many Michigan-Pennsylvania connections in the past couple of cases because the Betsy Ardsma mm -hmm. case, Betsy was born in Michigan, and I feel like there was another one that we recently recorded that involved Michigan. So don't it's go to Michigan. Weird. Wow, that's shady, Michigan. <laughs> Why you gotta be in two parts, man? There's a theory it could be this Betty Langar. Um, around the same time, four girls were reported missing, and it was believed that it may have been one of them. They were able to locate three of the missing girls, but the one named Betty was still unaccounted for. Betty had run away from a girl's home for troubled youth in the old Talbot Hall in Jonestown, which now houses the Jonestown American Legion. Over the years, police were unable to rule her out until 2015 when she popped up and said, hey, I'm alive. It's not me. So we can rule her out. It's not Betty. Wow. Right? Could you imagine, <laughs> like, living through all of that, right? Three of them are located, and she's still unaccounted for for a couple years, and then someone just finds her and says, like, hey, aren't you dead? Nah. Yeah. Like, no. Nope. Nope. I'm here. Still alive. Still kicking. So in 2017, the remains of, of uh, the Jane Doe were exhumed and the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children conducted chemical isotope testing with the assistance of the University of Florida in, in Tampa. They talked about the type of testing done before, but a quick description of it again is that scientists can roughly determine a human's region of origin or residence by measuring carbon isotope ratios in relation to dietary plants and other foods. Using various combinations of isotope measurements, the researchers try to identify body mass index, age, and the diet of members in the group sample. So in an article I read, it said, quote, this type of forensic testing is not going to identify a person, but it is another investigative tool that will help investigators focus their investigative efforts on a geographical region. That's a lot of investigation <laughs> in one sentence in this article. It was a little obsessive. But this testing determined that she was most likely spent time in the south or southeastern part of the country. And I'll link a photo to the map where they think that it goes. But it's like from as far west as mid-Texas to as far north as like southern Kentucky, Virginia. So that whole region, like Florida, Alabama, all of that. I don't know how I feel about this testing. I mean, I look at the Beth Doe case that we did and she was supposedly from like the Southwest US and then we found out she was from Jersey, which 
I totally called that one. You did. I did. <laughs> um, it just makes sense to me that she, that, um, there's a highway that went through there and the, like the newspaper and the suitcase and all that. So like the Bethdo case, definitely, definitely Jersey, but I don't want to get hung up on the isotope testing because I just, I don't know how accurate it is, which I hate to challenge science, but that's just me. I think it's good to, um, say like a big region because i guess if you're talking about south eastern united states like you could potentially like have part of jersey in there i mean at least it it wasn't somewhere like on the total west coast true that beth doe was from so i thought they Uh, said southwest yeah for beth doe i thought it was southeast but and that was my story but (laughs) I, don't I know. They I thought said, it was like Arizona or something, or maybe I'm confusing that with that turquoise jewelry case. Yeah, Perry County Jane Doe. They thought um, was from the Southwest, but she had. They thought she had recently moved more to like the Midwest, somewhere in Ohio or Indiana, or something like that, and then just was in Pennsylvania. I'm so she up. had Southwest involved. And they may have said for Beth Doe as well that maybe she was from Southwest and was recently in Southeast or something like that. Because I think, yeah. I don't know if it's isotope testing or some sort of other testing that can tell different things from different time periods. It has something to do with what they test. So it's like your hair can give them this quality your teeth can give them this quality your bones can give another quality um oh no you're right it is southeastern i just looked it back up she was right she would know it was her case but yeah i think it's just different different things yeah because i i believe there was something about like fluoride and toothpaste and stuff can determine Mm. like where you like if it fluorides in the water and stuff so I just feel like that's so much more genetic than geographical. You know what I mean? Like, if I have to use fluoride or extra fluoride on my teeth, it probably isn't because of where I live, but from, like, genetics or something. Well, they put fluoride in the water in, like, certain places, so you'd probably... I don't know. But then there is also fluoride in toothpaste, so it might make it a little more difficult. Right. Anyway, so there's the last theory, and I know, Sarah, you hate this theory because it pops up in everything, and your husband's a truck driver, but obviously the truck driver theory, um, because the Greenpoint location where the remains were found is super close to 81, and um, 81 goes as far south as Tennessee and as far north as Canada, and it's known as the fastest route between the capitals, which is... D.C., Mexico City, and Canada, and it's used a lot to bypass Interstate 95 since it's a more rural route. However, this only increases the amount of sex and drug trafficking since it's not as closely monitored, which is why the FBI started a task force in 2017. I feel like this scenario is always possible, and given this case as a whole, there's just not, there's just so many places to look. I don't, could it be a local that, like we said, that knows about it not being guarded and or was it really a truck driver i mean it could just be someone that needed a back road and found a back road i mean they they could be from timbuktu 
and have just been driving because it is so close to 81 that get off an exit and take a turn. Oh, wow, I'm in the middle of the woods. Looks like a good place to cut down some trees. Which like, is also 90% of Pennsylvania. But, too, like, would a truck driver have a, something to cut down tree branches and logs? So, I, I'm wondering if it was, like, actually cut down trees or if it was more, like... I kind of pictured, I guess, just knowing that it was in this region of PA, um, like hemlock branches that you can just kind of grab and tear. And if you have maybe a pocket knife, if one gets stuck, you can, you know, they're not huge branches that you could just kind of cover with. Um, That's possible. But I maybe I'm just imagining something other than what was the case. But there's a lot of things that you keep on hand in a truck in case anything breaks down. I don't think a chainsaw would be one of them, but some sort of knife or something to cut with might be something that you would have. I mean, that if be, you found small enough branches. That'd be super sketchy if, like, truck driver has a chainsaw and wasn't a logger. Fair. So, yeah. If anyone has information about the case... You're asked to call Corporal Nathan Trait at the Pennsylvania State Police in Jonestown at 717-865-2194. He is truly dedicated to identifying this woman and getting answers as to what happened. You can also call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-824-5678 and reference case number 12689. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victim, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.